0: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 104 Man of the Century. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by thanking our Patreon supporters. Without your help, this show would not be possible. I'd also like to invite the rest of you to join us on Patreon. For over a year now, we've been doing special bonus episodes for subscribers. The most recent installment included discussions of cavalry mounts, sleeping conditions, and Napoleon's sense of humor, or lack thereof. So if you haven't signed up yet, there is now over a year's worth of content waiting for you. Just visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. Patreon is very easy to use, and for those of you who are not comfortable with recurring charges, they do allow you to pay a set amount up front. The bonus episodes are a lot of fun, and signing up on Patreon is the single best way to support the show. And of course, you won't have to listen to ads anymore. I hope you'll consider joining us. Anyway. We left off last time in the summer of 1807. Napoleon was traveling west from the town of Tilsit on the Russian-Prussian border. He had just signed two momentous treaties with the Emperor of Russia and the King of Prussia. These were two separate treaties. Indeed, Napoleon and Alexander had negotiated over this specific point. Napoleon had wanted two treaties, and he had gotten his way. However, for whatever reason, history usually remembers these documents in the singular, as the Treaty of Tilsit, so I'll stick with that convention. Whatever you want to call them, the agreements reached at Tilsit had completely reset the European geopolitical scene. In this episode, I'd like to explore European diplomacy and French foreign policy in the wake of this momentous treaty. Two relatively large new countries were coming into being, the Kingdom of Westphalia in northwestern Germany and the Grand Duchy of Warsaw in what had once been the western provinces of the Polish Commonwealth. Prussia had lost roughly half its territory and population. These losses disproportionately included some of the wealthiest, most productive, and most strategically important parts of the country. The Prussians would also be forced to host an occupying French army, pay massive war reparations, and limit the size of their ground forces to just 43,000 men. The Kingdom of Prussia had been on the rise for over a century. Some had even believed it was destined to unite the disparate states of northern Germany and supplant Austria as the hegemon of the German-speaking states. At Tilsit, that rise had abruptly stopped, and that dream seemed further away than at any point in living memory. And Napoleon had not stopped at inflicting political, diplomatic, and strategic losses on the Prussians. He seemed to have gone out of his way to humiliate and insult the Prussian king and queen. This was not purely about geopolitics. Napoleon's hatred of the Prussians was personal. The most important outcome of the negotiations at Tilsit was the agreement between Napoleon and Emperor Alexander of Russia. France and Russia were now aligned on the world stage. Alexander had agreed to join Napoleon's so-called continental system, banning all trade with the United Kingdom, and helping France keep British merchants locked out of lucrative European markets. Here, too, there was a personal side to the story. Napoleon and Alexander had gotten along far better than anyone had dared hope. The two men had spent hours together during the negotiations, mostly one-on-one. There seems to have been a mutual fascination, at the very least, maybe even a real friendship. Napoleon was convinced that he had forged a special bond with the young Russian emperor, that, come what may, he would always have Alexander in his corner. As he made the journey back to his capital, Napoleon must have felt the weight of all his achievements. Nearly the entire continent was now under his power. Most of Germany was occupied by French troops, or ruled by governments that were locked into unequal alliances with France. His younger brother, Louis, sat on the throne of the Kingdom of Holland. Switzerland remained under pro-French rule as well, although it had been renamed once again. The Helvetic Republic had been reorganized, and was now called the Swiss Confederation. Northern Italy was dominated by the Kingdom of Italy, ruled by Napoleon himself, with his stepson Eugène de Beauharnais acting as viceroy. Southern Italy was ruled by the Kingdom of Naples, under King Giuseppe I, formerly known as Joseph Bonaparte, although Sicily still remained under enemy control. Much of central Italy was still ruled by the Pope. Who was independent, but his domains were surrounded by French satellite states, and his administration and military were very weak. He was practically at Napoleon's mercy, his only real power was his moral authority as leader of the Catholic Church. Spain was allied to France, many in Madrid were unhappy with this state of affairs, but with their government and military weak and ineffective, they stood little chance of changing it any time soon to the north. Denmark, which also ruled over Norway, remained independent, but was drifting closer to Paris. Even the faraway province of Dalmatia, the modern coast of Croatia, was now host to a French garrison. Several Greek islands had been added to the empire as well. The list of European countries not under either direct French control or indirect domination is considerably smaller. Great Britain, of course, including Ireland... The Russian Empire retained its holdings in Eastern Europe, but they were now aligned with the French. The Ottomans still controlled huge swaths of territory in the Balkans. To the west, Portugal also remained outside French influence. The Portuguese had long-standing diplomatic and commercial ties to Great Britain, and their economy was highly dependent on international trade. Thus, they had proved unwilling, so far, to join Napoleon's continental system. However, as we'll see, Bonaparte was already in the early stages of a plan to deal with the Portuguese. Sweden remained at war with France, but with its old nemesis, Russia, now aligned with Napoleon, their situation had become very precarious. Austria was, of course, still outside French influence as well. They had not joined the most recent coalition, but Vienna remained hostile to France, They had lost a lot of territory in the preceding decade, but the Habsburg Empire was still massive, including Austria proper, the modern states of Hungary, Slovenia, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, along with huge swaths of territory in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. However, the Habsburgs controlled precious little coastline. Their few ports were all on the Adriatic Sea, far from British commerce, and largely controlled by the French and their Italian allies. Vienna was unlikely to voluntarily join the continental system, but with their land border with Russia now closed to British commerce, there was no longer any safe, reliable avenue for trade between the Habsburg lands and Great Britain. Furthermore, many had begun to question whether or not Austria was even still capable of challenging French power. Germany and Italy had been venues of competition between France and Austria for longer than any living person could remember, and now they were both firmly under French control. When you compare the most recent three wars between France and Austria, the gap in performance between the two militaries seems to be growing, not shrinking. As things stood, France had no serious rivals on the continent, at least for the moment. Once again, Britain stood practically alone. Bonaparte was quite satisfied with himself. He had achieved all his foreign policy goals, and more. Tilsit had made him more powerful and influential than any European leader in centuries. Perhaps since Charlemagne, whose reign was by then almost a thousand years in the past roughly as distant to Napoleon as the Norman conquest of England is to us. It had only been seven and a half years since his seizure of power, less time than two-term American presidents serve in office. It had been less than two years since the Grande Armée had left its camps on the English Channel and stormed into Germany to catch General Mach at Ulm. The twin hammer blows of Jena and Auerstedt were only eight months in the past. Bonaparte believed he had finally reached the summit. With Alexander by his side, it was only a matter of time until the few remaining countries outside French influence accepted this new order. Then, it would just be a matter of maintaining the blockade on British trade and waiting for the ensuing economic chaos to force the British government to the negotiating table, where they would have little choice but to accept French hegemony over Western Europe. Not only had Napoleon done it, he had done it more or less himself. Obviously, he had led the army to victory at Friedland, which had forced the Russians to negotiate. And then, he had conducted those negotiations himself, with very little help from his professional diplomats and foreign policy experts. Talleyrand, France's corrupt but brilliant foreign minister, had not even been present at Tilsit until the third day of talks. And he had mostly sat on the sidelines, while Napoleon and Alexander spent hours together alone, hashing things out one on one. The Emperor and his foreign minister traveled back to Paris together. We don't know exactly what they discussed on this three week journey, but I have to imagine they spent at least some of the time discussing France's diplomatic position and the two momentous treaties Napoleon had just signed. Talleyrand had a very different perspective on these events. Napoleon believed he had just laid the groundwork for a new geopolitical order, with France ruling the west and Russia the east. But Talleyrand felt Tilsit had been a massive mistake. He believed this new order was built on shifting sands, destined to fail. He was not very impressed by his emperor's profession of friendship with Alexander. Depending on your perspective, Talleyrand was either totally cynical or a clear-eyed realist. He looked at diplomacy in terms of national interests and balances of power. Fuzzy emotional concepts like friendship didn't really enter into his calculations. When Talleyrand looked at the diplomatic situation between France and Russia, he saw a massive flashpoint for future conflict—Poland. If you'll recall last episode, Napoleon had not been blind to the sensitivity of this issue. He believed he and Alexander had worked out a compromise that left both parties satisfied. The new pro-French Polish state that was carved out of Prussia's eastern provinces would not be called Poland, but the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. They had even picked a non-Polish nobleman to serve as its Grand Duke, Frederick Augustus, King of Saxony, a German. Napoleon and Alexander had both claimed to be happy with this compromise, and apparently both considered the Polish issue settled. Talleyrand thought otherwise, and I think he had a point. This compromise was no compromise at all. They had simply slapped a new name at a German figurehead on the old idea of a refounded Polish state. There would be no mechanism within the agreement to prevent the Grand Duchy of Warsaw from realizing Russia's worst fears and seeking to unite with other formerly Polish territories within Russia. And it would be a liberal constitutional monarchy right on Russia's doorstep. This was bound to cause anxiety among the deeply conservative Russian aristocracy, no matter what the state was called or what the nationality of the ruler was. Napoleon had Alexander's personal assurance the issue was settled, but how much was that promise really worth in the face of Russia's national interest and the grand impersonal forces of history? According to Talleyrand, not much. The wily foreign minister believed France should pursue an entirely different policy. Talleyrand strongly supported Polish statehood. In fact, he believed the fall of Poland was one of the main reasons European geopolitics had become so unstable in the late 18th century. He saw the resurrection of Poland as an important key to re-establishing equilibrium. However, he had no illusions about what this would mean for Franco-Russian relations. He knew the foundation of a new French-backed Polish state would mean rivalry between France and Russia for the foreseeable future. He also knew there were significant commercial ties between Russia and Great Britain. Joining the continental system would be very painful for Russia, and that meant there would be a lot of powerful people putting pressure on Alexander to change course. Talleyrand believed Napoleon should have been focused on winning over a different former enemy, Austria. At first blush, that might seem insane. Austria had been France's greatest geopolitical rival for longer than anyone could remember. Within the last 15 years, there had been three different wars between the two countries. Austria was France's great nemesis. Everyone knew that. But remember, Talleyrand was a coldly calculating realist. When he looked beyond feelings and history and conventional wisdom, he saw an opportunity for reconciliation between Napoleon and the Habsburgs. When you look at his thinking, he may have been onto something. Since the time of the Renaissance, Franco-Austrian rivalry had been driven by two main flashpoints, Western Germany and Italy. Generations of policymakers in both countries believe their country had to dominate these regions to keep their own borders secure. That had inevitably drawn the two countries into conflict. The competition for influence in Western Germany and Italy had lasted for over a century and resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands. But by 1807, that struggle was over and had been for several years. Austria had lost. No trace of Habsburg influence remained in either Italy or Western Germany. The Holy Roman Empire was gone too. Just two years ago, the presence of tens of thousands of French troops in Germany would be a crisis for the empire that the Holy Roman Emperor Francis II would be expected to address. Now that he was just Emperor Francis of Austria, he had no more obligations to the small states of Germany. These were just foreign affairs across his northern border. Whatever enmity still existed between France and Austria, it was mostly just hard feelings. There was little underlying conflict remaining between the two empires' national interests. And there were areas where French and Austrian interests aligned, most importantly in Southern and Eastern Europe. In both Vienna and St. Petersburg, policymakers looked south to the Balkans with hungry eyes. They had seen that their old mutual enemy, the Ottoman Empire, was weak at getting weaker. Some of the Ottomans' European provinces were quite wealthy and strategically important, and they might be ripe for the taking. Many of these areas had large, non-Turkish-speaking Christian populations, who probably would have welcomed a change in government. Neither Russia nor Austria was very interested in sharing these spoils, and so they were coming to view each other as rivals. Since the fall of Poland, the two empires also shared a long land border in Eastern Europe. Whenever two large empires share a border, there is, almost inevitably, tension. They say good fences make good neighbors, and it's the same with empires. A few buffer states in between make for much more harmonious relations. No one likes having a big menacing army right on their doorstep. Furthermore, the third partition of Poland was only 12 years in the past. The new borders were still fresh and still unsettled. Both powers privately wished they had a bigger slice of Poland, and both were aware their rivals felt the same way. With the French now deeply invested in Poland, Talleyrand believed all this was a recipe for collaboration, and perhaps even friendship between France and Austria. If Napoleon went to the Habsburgs with the same spirit of openness and cooperation he had shown Alexander, and emphasized their shared interest in preventing Russian expansion, the Austrians would be receptive. They certainly hated Napoleon, and decades of warfare between the two countries had sowed a lot of bitter feelings. But the Austrians were not fools. Like all statesmen, they were guided by their country's national interest. And it was hard to argue with the fact that France's involvement in Poland and their conquest of Italy and Western Germany had brought French and Austrian interests into alignment. Geopolitics is like the weather, unpredictable and capricious, outside of any one person's control. One day the diplomatic winds blow west, the next they blow east. Great diplomats learn to harness the wind. Amateurs fight against it. Talleyrand believed the wind was carrying France towards Vienna, but Napoleon stubbornly insisted on rowing towards St. Petersburg. On their journey back to France, Napoleon and Talleyrand must have discussed these two competing visions. They didn't have any kind of falling out, both men were too intelligent and calculating for that, but it became clear to both of them that they could no longer continue working together quite so closely. How could Talleyrand help lead France down what he felt was the wrong path? And how could Napoleon rely on the advice of someone he knew did not support his policies? And so, Talleyrand would be promoted out of the foreign ministry. He was given a grandiose new title, Vice Grand Elector of the Empire, technically making him one of the highest-ranking members of the executive branch of government. He would continue to advise Napoleon and play his role on the Council of State, but he would no longer play a direct role in French foreign policy. He would be replaced at the foreign ministry by Jean-Baptiste de l'Ampere de Champagny, a retired admiral who had entered government service as Minister of the Interior. Champagny had proven to be a capable administrator, but he had very little diplomatic experience. Consensus seems to be that his main qualifications for the job were his loyalty to Napoleon and his willingness to shut up and do what he was told. Talleyrand wasn't the only person with concerns about the new alliance between France and Russia. As we discussed last episode, Emperor Alexander was elated with the deal. He had been bracing himself to give up Russian territory in exchange for peace. Instead, he had found an intriguing opportunity to expand his empire's power through collaboration with France, and an opportunity to study Bonaparte up close, a man he clearly found fascinating and believed he could learn from. However, upon his return from Tilsit, he discovered that most of his courtiers and senior officials felt differently. There was a great deal of hostility towards France among the Russian ruling class, Many of them were crazy for French fashions and luxury goods. Many of them even spoke French amongst themselves, as a mark of their education and sophistication. However, in the well-heeled neighborhoods of St. Petersburg and Moscow, people were still afraid of the dangerous ideas unleashed by the revolution. Perhaps understandably, many also felt threatened by the power of the French military and the speed of Napoleon's recent conquests and for many Europeans, Napoleon himself had become a frightening figure. He was well known to be ambitious, and there were plenty of examples of him behaving ruthlessly in pursuit of his goals. He had contempt for the old rules and traditions that had governed European geopolitics for centuries. It seemed there were no limits to his behavior. Who knew what he might do next? If Napoleon was here to defend himself, he would probably say that he was only ever ruthless in service of the greater good, that his wars had all been started by his enemies, and that he was merely defending France and ensuring its future security, and that he had contempt for the rules of that old style of diplomacy because they were ineffective and unfair. Perhaps there's some truth there, but that's certainly not how the Russian nobility saw things. There's also the question of Alexander's own personal commitment to the deal. Napoleon had left Tilsit convinced he had secured a friend and partner for life, but, as we discussed last episode, Alexander's own private correspondence from the period immediately after the treaty paint a somewhat different picture. He had assured King Frederick William of Prussia that they remained friends, and said that he would prove it in the future. He even said that at some point in the future, Napoleon would break his own neck. In his letters to his family, he seemed less than enamored with Napoleon, fascinated to be sure, but definitely not under some kind of spell, as Bonaparte seemed to believe. As we discussed last episode, Alexander was a difficult man to read, who often told people what they wanted to hear and kept his own true thoughts hidden. But who was he lying to? Was he downplaying his relationship with Napoleon to his family and to Frederick William, or had he been pretending at Tilsit? Bonaparte believed his personal relationship with Alexander would be the glue that held this deal together, but their connection might not have been quite as strong as he thought. eBay Motors is here for the ride. It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We've now devoted a lot of time to criticisms of the Treaty of Tilsit, but I don't want to give a misleading impression. Critics of the deal were very much in the minority. To most of the European public... This was another stunning success for Bonaparte. As that French senator we quoted from last episode put it, quote, the triumphs of the diplomat added to those of the general. End quote. This was a victory at the negotiating table to match his dazzling battlefield victories. If you'll think back to our episodes on the Treaty of Amiens, that short window of peace between France and Britain in 1802 and 3, you'll recall what a golden time that was for France. People were very optimistic about Napoleon's regime, and not only his own subjects. All over Europe, people were eager to see what the First Consul might achieve. Those feelings had been dashed, first by the return to war with Britain, then the coronation, then two years of almost non-stop bloody fighting, and then by the harsh reality of French occupation over so many conquered lands. However, the victory at Friedland and subsequent deal at Tilsit seemed to have rekindled a degree of faith in Bonaparte and his government. He was now commonly referred to as Napoleon the Great within France, the first monarch to get that honor since the Sun King, Louis XIV, nearly a hundred years earlier. However, this surge of optimism was weak and shallow compared to the enthusiasm of the old days. Two years of bloody war had taken a toll on the French public. People had become much more cynical about Napoleon and his regime. Seven years earlier, the public had been eager to read Napoleon's bulletins. Now, hardly anyone believed them, and many ignored them entirely. A new idiom entered the French language, to lie like a bulletin, basically meaning the same thing as to lie through one's teeth. After the news of the Battle of Friedland reached Paris, one observer remarked that it was generally received not with joy at victory, but with relief that it was not a defeat. If you'll think back to episode 98, you'll recall that in late 1806, Napoleon had received a delegation of French senators in Berlin, who had warned him that the public was turning against the war, and begged him to seek peace by any means. Around the same time, Napoleon's sinister but effective minister of police, Joseph Fouché, had given him a similar message. These warnings had come before the ill-fated winter campaign in Poland, and before the bloodbath of Eilau. Tens of thousands of Frenchmen had died in the field since then, and many more had been maimed. And it wasn't just the human cost. As we've discussed in past episodes, the massive spending required to keep the Grande Armée functioning at peak efficiency far from home put a lot of strain on the French economy. The country was also engaged in an ambitious and very expensive shipbuilding program to replace the losses of Trafalgar. The ongoing trade war with Britain was tremendously costly as well, both in terms of the economic disruption it caused and the direct costs of enforcement. No wonder people weren't exactly feeling that old Bonaparte magic. Still, the mood in the country was more optimistic than it had been in years. When Napoleon returned to Paris, huge crowds turned out, crying out, Long live the Emperor, and Long live France. With nearly all of Europe under French domination, at least some members of Napoleon's government were intoxicated with the possibilities before them. A young French civil servant left Paris for a posting in Germany around this time, and he would later recall his feelings in his memoirs. It was something to be a Frenchman in Europe. In Germany, I was what the Roman proconsuls had been once upon a time. I lived in an age of ambition, and the road opened before me, wide and strewn with flowers. I could no more doubt my good fortune than that of the empire, and I can still recall that sort of drunkenness which I felt crossing that eternally famous river, the Rhine, now bent under our yoke after our victories. Whether as a soldier or a civil servant of Napoleon, it was not easy to be modest. End quote. You can see how the current state of affairs might have captured the imagination of an ambitious young bureaucrat. But was this all really a positive development for the country? Remember, by our standards, the bureaucracy of Napoleonic France was small, corrupt, amateurish, and extremely limited in its capabilities. This small band of eager civil servants was now responsible for governing much of the continent. They would be asked to enforce unpopular dictates from Paris, including the continental system. You could make the argument that the French government was now overextended. The economic and political heartland of Napoleon's empire remained mostly unchanged, northern and western France, the Low Countries, and northern Italy. A lot more territory had been added to the empire, but it would probably not correspond to a proportional increase in tax revenue or administrative capacity. The French government had a lot more to do, but not many more resources with which to do it. Talleyrand's move to the position of vice-grand elector would prove to be the first of several changes to the French government. Now that he was back in his capital, it seems the emperor wanted to clean house. Senior civil servants were shuffled around, new senators were appointed, and new titles given out. Perhaps the most significant of these changes, aside from Talleyrand, was at the War Ministry. Since early 1804, Napoleon's loyal, reliable chief of staff, Marshal Louis-Alexandre Berthier, had been doing double duty, serving both as chief of staff of the Grande Armée and as minister of war. Berthier had an absolutely unstoppable work ethic, perhaps second only to Napoleon. Maybe this was one reason the two men got along so well. During peacetime, he had handled both jobs quite well, but now that the army had spent the better part of two years on campaign, it had become clear there were some serious drawbacks to having the war minister away from Paris for extended periods of time. And so Berthier would be replaced by Henri-Jacques Guillaume Clark, another former army staff officer. As you might guess from that name, Clark had Irish roots. His father had served in the old Irish exile regiments of the kings of France, and Clark had followed him into the military. He was a very competent administrator, and would prove to be a good fit at the war ministry. However, he was widely disliked for his bombastic, pretentious personality and tendency to launch into long, boring monologues, usually about himself. Nonetheless, Napoleon found him very useful, and he will remain as Minister of War almost until the end of our story. Napoleon also dissolved the Tribunate, one of France's three legislative bodies. At first glance, that probably sounds pretty awful. Fresh from his conquests, the dictator comes home and immediately disbands the legislature. But if you'll think back to episode 67, you'll recall that Napoleon had pretty effectively sidelined the tribunes all the way back in 1802, when they had dared to reject the first draft of the new civil code. France had a somewhat unwieldy, tricameral legislature, with the Senate as the upper house and two lower houses, the Tribunate and the legislative corps. Almost anyone who was paying attention saw the dissolution of the Tribunate as a positive development, streamlining the government and getting rid of a redundant institution. And of course, not very many people were paying attention. Most people in France were not very politically conscious, and most of those who were correctly saw the legislative branch of government as little more than a rubber stamp for Napoleon and a way for him to dole out patronage. No surprise, no one made much of a fuss. Speaking of patronage, Napoleon also announced a whole host of new noble titles. The new Napoleonic nobility was different from the aristocracy of the old regime. These were rewards for service. They went mostly to army officers who had distinguished themselves on the battlefield, or to politicians or bureaucrats who had proven effective in the government. Some former aristocrats of the old regime were able to gain new titles, But most of these freshly ennobled men came from more humble backgrounds. Nearly 80% had been commoners before the Revolution. And these new titles were not unconditional. They could be inherited, but there were income and property requirements for the heirs. So, if a noble family lost its estates, and its potential heirs didn't have some kind of well-compensated job, they would lose the title. Bonaparte believed this would keep his new nobility devoted to achievement and service, naturally weeding out the unworthy, and preventing the proliferation of relatively poor and undistinguished people with noble titles, as had occurred under the old system. By late 1807, thousands of people in France had received titles from the Napoleonic government, and that's not counting less prestigious awards like the Order of the Legion of Honor. If you could ask Napoleon, he would probably tell you this was all fundamentally different from the elitist social structure of the old regime. This new aristocracy was open to all. Anyone who served the public good would receive a just reward. Whether he was born in a chateau or a dirt-floored farmhouse, a fine mansion in Paris, or a rotting tenement in the slums, anyone could rise if he served France. At least, that's how it was supposed to work in theory. You might call it a betrayal of the ideals of the Revolution, or you might call it a practical modern adaptation of an old idea, but there was no denying the fact that social distinction had returned to France. Napoleon also set to work on another project that would bring back memories of the old regime the restoration of Fontainebleau Palace, just outside Paris, which had served as a country estate for the kings of France since the Middle Ages. He sunk over 3 million francs into the palace, roughly $17 million in today's money. Fontainebleau was closely associated with two of the greatest kings in the history of France. Francis I, who had helped build up the absolutist institutions of the old monarchy, and been a famous patron of artists and intellectuals. And Henry IV, a pragmatic peacemaker who had helped heal and unify the country after the ruinous wars of religion. Napoleon looked to both men as models, and you can probably see why. He saw parallels between his own regime and theirs. He was clearly thinking about his legacy. He wanted to put his own mark on Fontainebleau because he wanted future generations to look back on him the same way his generation looked back on Francis and Henry. There was also a purely pragmatic reason for his interest in the palace. The route between Fontainebleau and central Paris would take him right through the working-class districts of the city, where his regime was popular, rather than through the wealthy neighborhoods, where royalism was still strong. It had been years since there were civil disturbances of any consequence inside the capital. The imperial regime looked as strong as ever, but for a man like Napoleon who had lived through the bloody chaos of the revolution, the fear of the power of the mob always lurked in the background, no matter how stable things seemed. There were all kinds of reasons behind the decisions Napoleon made in the weeks and months after his return—practical concerns, political expediency, and his own beliefs and psychology. But many outside observers saw the same pattern. As the regime became more entrenched, it increasingly resembled the old pre-revolutionary monarchy. Around this time, a French senator described Napoleon's court this way, quote, it was no longer the tent of the hero, crowned in victory, but the ridiculous show of an old-fashioned royal court, with all the exaggerations of the past, without the politeness, the urbanity, and the good manners. Quote. Interestingly, that same senator believed the change in the court corresponded with a change in Napoleon's character. Quote, there was in his manner a kind of constraint, a sort of stiffness, which inspired fear rather than respect, and seemed to put distance between him and those closest to him. End quote. We've talked about this phenomenon before. The higher Napoleon rose, the more remote he became. Power isolated him, even from his inner circle. Perhaps that's all this was. With the Treaty of Tilsit, the scale of his power had increased yet again. I think it's also worth mentioning that Napoleon was getting older. Shortly after his return to Paris, he would celebrate his 38th birthday. The emperor was leaving youth behind and entering middle age. He would certainly not be the first person to become more stern, less social, and more conservative at this stage of life. In a sense, Napoleon and his regime were at roughly the same stage of development. Bonaparte had come to power as a young phenom, a prodigy. He had been just thirty years old, and the whole continent had been eager to see what he might do. Now, he was a known quantity, with a track record of seven years. As we've discussed, there was no longer the same glimmer of hope around his government. People were either satisfied or had become disillusioned. No one was drunk on the possibilities of what Napoleon might do with power. Everyone in Europe had seen how he ruled. Some approved of it, some didn't, but it wasn't an unknown quantity for anyone. The time for new frontiers and fresh experiments was over. Both the empire and its ruler were entering a period of consolidation. The tasks facing Napoleon now were to secure and institutionalize what he had already done, and to tie up the remaining loose ends that still threatened to unravel the new order he was bringing into being. Even after the greatest foreign policy victory of his career, Napoleon had no time to rest on his laurels. While the negotiations were underway at Tilsit, he had received word of unfortunate developments in Italy. Pope Pius VII was not happy with Bonaparte, and was considering issuing an official public rebuke of the French government. Friction between the Church and the governments of Catholic countries was far from unusual, but these disagreements were almost always kept private, to be handled by diplomats and politicians behind the scenes. A public denunciation, like the one the Pope was apparently considering, would have been an escalation of the conflict, and it might have even turned some average French Catholics against the government. It could even be the first step down the road back to civil discord, maybe even civil war. Napoleon sent a letter to his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, who was acting as his official representative in Italy. In this letter, he laid out his position on Franco-Vatican relations. He instructed Eugène to leak this letter to the Vatican, tell the Pope that he only wanted to provide clarity on his stepfather's thinking in the interests of avoiding conflict. From that letter, quote, Jesus Christ declared that his kingdom was not of this world. Why won't the Pope's render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? Is the Pope something greater on earth than Jesus Christ was? Is religion to be based on anarchy, on civil war, on revolt? The Pope threatens me with an appeal to the people. In truth, I begin to blush and feel ashamed at all the foolishness that the court of Rome makes me endure. And, if they insist on creating disturbances in my states... Perhaps it will not be long before I refuse to recognize the Pope as anything more than the Bishop of Rome. End quote. In case that last line is unclear, that would mean denying the Pope's authority to lead the Church, effectively the same move King Henry VIII of England made when he turned his country away from Catholicism. For the moment, the letter seemed to work, although I doubt the Pope enjoyed being lectured on Christian theology by a soldier. However, the whole affair was proof that despite the Concordat of 1801, there was still a great deal of tension between Paris and Rome. Neither side wanted a return to open conflict, but it seemed neither was ready for true cooperation either. The Vatican would continue to be a thorn in Napoleon's side, although perhaps not quite as sharp or irritating as it had been to previous French governments. Shortly after this business with the Pope, Bonaparte received a very different communique from Berlin. It was a letter from King Frederick William of Prussia, and the contents were quite surprising given all that had happened between the two countries over the last year. The Prussian king praised Napoleon in effusive terms You are the greatest man of the century. He proposed an alliance between France and Prussia. A year earlier, Napoleon would have jumped at this opportunity. Now, Prussia didn't have much to offer. Bonaparte had just forced them to cap the size of their military at 43,000 men. French troops were occupying the country. To be blunt, if Napoleon wanted something from the Prussians, he could just take it. So you might think he turned Frederick William down. But in fact, he didn't even respond to the letter. Yet another insult. This brings me to another criticism of the Treaty of Tilsit. What was Napoleon doing with the Prussians? Not only had he made them suffer at the negotiating table, he had gone out of his way to insult them at every turn. Bonaparte certainly had his reasons to dislike the Prussian king and queen, but once he had made the decision to let them keep their crowns, how did it serve France's interests to antagonize them further? If he was seeking to build a new geopolitical order for Europe, surely this goal would be best served by reconciling the Prussians to the new way of things, not by keeping them alienated. With this letter, Frederick Williams seemed to be signaling his readiness to turn the page on the acrimony of the preceding year and accept Napoleon's vision for Europe, at least for the time being. But Napoleon wasn't interested. If he was here to defend himself, perhaps he might say he couldn't trust the Prussians. He knew they were both personally and ideologically hostile to France. He knew they wanted to regain all their losses from Tilsit. They would never be truly reconciled to a geopolitical order led by Napoleon's empire. Fair enough, but if Napoleon couldn't work with Frederick William, not even when there were French troops on the streets of Berlin, why had he allowed him to remain on the throne? The obvious answer was that Alexander had asked him to, and Napoleon had agreed because he needed to appease the Russians. But what was the long term plan here? Was he going to just leave the Prussians out in the cold forever? Or was he planning to forgive them after a suitable period of time out? In any case, it's a strange way to conduct diplomacy. Napoleon prided himself on his coldly rational governance. He saw himself as above petty human biases, and focused solely on the public good. But how were France's interests served by punishing King Frederick William? Napoleon was also troubled by reports from Austria. If you'll think back to past episodes, we've discussed how the Austrian military leadership had been divided. There was a young guard who wanted to make sweeping reforms. Everything from the basics, like the training and equipment of individual soldiers, to huge broad changes, like new doctrines and new organizational structures. Some of them even advocated changes to the government and administration to facilitate these improvements to the military. This group was probably best represented by the younger brother of the Austrian emperor, Archduke Charles von Teschen. However, there was also an old guard, who felt such drastic reform might cause more problems than it solved. A lot of the Young Guard's agenda was inspired by military innovations pioneered by the French. As you might expect, the Habsburg leadership was a conservative bunch, and the idea of making things in Austria more like they were in France was a tough sell. That may make it sound like they were just old sticks in the mud, But remember, at this point in history, it was not at all clear that the military revolution underway in France was compatible with an old regime system of government. The Young Guard thought it was worth the risk to try to reconcile a new-style army with an old-style regime. The Old Guard was not so optimistic. As you can see, this was a thorny conflict. However, recent events had tipped the balance in favor of the Young Guard. Quite simply, the fact that Austria had lost three wars to the French in ten years was a powerful argument that their military needed to change. In particular, the performance of the Austrian army in the most recent conflict, the War of the Third Coalition, which had culminated at Austerlitz, had been atrocious. The Austrians had been outclassed at almost every step. In some engagements, they hadn't even looked very competitive with their French enemies. It also probably didn't help the old guard that one of their leading voices, General Karl Mach von Leiberich, had committed perhaps the worst act of incompetence by any military leader in Europe since the outbreak of the French Revolution, getting his entire army surrounded at Ulm and surrendering to Napoleon without a major battle. And so, in the wake of Austerlitz, the pro-reform faction within the Austrian military was allowed to implement much of their program. The government poured massive resources into recruiting, training, and equipping new units. The military was reorganized into a more logical and more French-style system. By the time Napoleon returned from Tilsit, it was clear to any outside observer that Austria was preparing for another war in the near future. And given the current geopolitical situation in Europe, France was the only likely opponent. Napoleon instructed his new foreign minister, Champagny, to write a letter to the Austrian ambassador to France, warning him that the French were aware of Austrian war preparations and saw them as a threat. Quote, What vertigo has seized people at Vienna? What enemy threatens you? You are calling the whole population to arms. Your princes beat up the country like knights errant. What would you say if your neighbors did the same? Do you wish to bring about a crisis? Knowing as we do that you have no alliance with Russia, the help of England is clearly no service to you. The emperor cannot understand what you are about. Up to the present, he has taken no military steps. Can you inform me confidentially what it all means, and how we can prevent a crisis from occurring? Quote. Of course, the Austrians had no interest in preventing a crisis, only in delaying it until their new military was ready, and the moment was right. Napoleon was also beginning to turn his focus southwest, towards Spain. We'll discuss this more in future episodes, but to make a long story short, the Franco-Spanish alliance was now over ten years old, but it had never been solid. The two countries' interests were aligned on the world stage, but the two governments were not a good fit. For one thing, Spain was ruled by the Bourbon dynasty, the same family that had been violently deposed by the French revolutionaries. Generally speaking, the Spanish ruling class was piously Catholic and very attached to the traditional way of doing things. As we've discussed at length in past episodes, Bonaparte's government was anything but. There was little holding the two countries together beyond their shared opposition to the British and Madrid's fear of French power. Napoleon felt Spain had been a poor ally. Its government did not truly believe in cooperation with France. And beyond that. Even if he could somehow convince them to embrace the alliance, their administration and military were so old-fashioned and incompetent that they probably would not be very useful. Even before the Treaty of Tilsit was finalized, he was already contemplating radical steps to bring Spain in line with his vision. And, of course, the last of these remaining loose threads was the British. Napoleon hoped the continental system would eventually bring them to their knees, But for the time being, there was a powerful enemy lurking right across the Channel, who Napoleon had no way of striking at directly. As we'll discuss in the future, the British were already preparing a shocking military response to Tilsit. They didn't look like a country on the verge of collapse. Looking at the European geopolitical scene in mid-1807 from our vantage point, knowing what would happen over the course of the next eight years, it is pretty clear what we are seeing. Napoleon had reached the apex of his power, but the cracks were beginning to appear. The task of consolidating all the incredible gains of the past few years while addressing these remaining loose ends would prove impossible. As strong as the empire looked, the seeds of its destruction were already germinating. Of course, no one has the luxury of looking at their own time with the benefit of hindsight. To those who actually experienced these events, it looked like there were only a few remaining obstacles to Napoleon's total victory. As we'll see over the course of the coming episodes, Bonaparte's defeat was certainly not inevitable. His journey will get harder, but he was still in control of his own destiny. The Grande Armée was still the most powerful fighting force in the world. The French government was still the most dynamic and effective on the continent. Although public enthusiasm for his regime had waned, generally speaking, the people of France were still behind him. He could also call upon the resources of most of Western Europe. And of course, Napoleon was still Napoleon. His genius and energy remained undiminished, even as he grew colder and more remote. His reputation was stronger than ever. Whatever difficulties lay ahead, the Emperor of the French would continue to make his mark on Europe for the foreseeable future. In the coming episodes, we'll explore the nature of Napoleonic rule, and watch as Napoleon's enemies begin to adapt to his methods. But all that will have to wait for the future. As always, thanks for listening. One last thing, don't forget to check out other podcasts on our network, like The Explorers Podcast, The History of Everything, and Pax Britannica. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history,